Section 13, A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 13, Wounded, Body and Soul. To say the Sioux were furious at the failure of their second attempt would be putting it far too mildly. The fierce charge from the northward side, made under cover of the blinding smoke, sent drifting by the gale across the level flats, had been pushed so close to the grove that two red braves and half a dozen ponies had met their death within sixty paces of the rifle pits. There lay the bodies now, and the Indians dare not attempt to reach them. The dread, wind-driven flame of the prairie fire, planned by the Sioux to burn out the defense, to serve as their ally, had been turned to their grave detriment. Ray and his devoted men had stopped the sweep of so much of the conflagration as threatened their little stronghold. But raging unhampered elsewhere, the seething wall rolled on towards the east, spreading gradually towards its flanks, and so not only consuming vast acres of bunch-grass, but checking the attack that should have been made from the entire southern half of the Indian Circle. Later, leaping the sandy stream-bed a little to the west of the cottonwoods, it spread in wild career over a huge tract along the left bank, and now reuniting with the southern wing some distance down the valley was roaring away to the bluffs of the Miniposa, leaving death and desolation in its track. Miles to the east, the war-parties, from the reservation, riding to join Lame Wolf, sighted the black curtain of smoke, swift sailing over the prairie, and changed their course accordingly. Not so many miles away to the south, Webb's skirmishers, driving before them three or four Sioux scouts from the northward slope of the Moccasin Ridge, set spurs to their horses, and took the gallop the main body following on with their eyelids blistered by heat and smoke, Ray's silent, determined little band could see nothing of the coming force, yet new relief was nigh, for close at hand, both east and west, large bodies of enemy could be seen swift riding away to the north. They had hoped, as Fox had planned and promised, to burn out and overwhelm the little troop at the grove before the column from Frame could possibly reach the spot. They had even anticipated the probable effort of the command to check the flames, and had told off some fifty braves to open concentric fire on any party that could rush into the open. With that object in view, they had thought to send in such a storm of lead, even from long range, that it should daunt and drive back those who dared to attempt. They had stormed indeed, but could neither daunt nor drive back. Ray's men had braved death itself in the desperate essay, and, even in dying, had won the day. But their losses had been cruel. Three killed outright, three dying, and eight more or less severely wounded, had reduced their fighting strength to nearly thirty. The guards of the sorrels herded in the stream-bed had all they could do to control the poor, frightened creatures. Many of them hit, several of them felled by the plunging fire from the far hillsides. Even though driven back, the Sioux never meant to give up the battle. On every side, leaving their ponies at safe distance by dozens, the warriors crawled forward, snake-like, 
to the edge of the burned and blackened surface, and from there poured in a rapid and most harassing fire, compelling the defense to lie flat or burrow further and wounding many horses. The half-hour that followed the repulse of their grand assault had been sorely trying to the troop, for the wounded needed aid. More men were hit, and there was no chance whatever to hit back. Moving from point to point, Ray carried cheer and courage on every side, yet was so constantly exposed as to cause his men fresh anxiety. Even as he was bending over field, a bullet had nipped the right shoulder-strap, and later another had torn through the crown of his campaign hat. In all the years of their frontier fighting they had never known a hotter fire, but Ray's voice rang out through the drifting vapor with the same old cheer and confidence. "'They can't charge again till the ground cools off,' he cried. "'By that time they'll have their hands full. See how they're scuttling away at the southward even now. Just keep covered and you're all right.' and barring a growl or two from favored old hands who sought to make the captain take his own medicine and himself keep covered the answer was full of cheer and so they waited through the hot smoke and sunshine of the autumn afternoon and even while comforting the wounded with assurance of coming relief kept vigilant watch on every hostile move and at last toward three o'clock the sharp fire about them slackened away the smoldering roots of the bunch-grass had burned themselves out. The smoke drifted away from the prairie, and as the landscape cleared to the south and west, a cheer of delight went up from the cottonwoods. For the slopes three miles away were dotted here and there and everywhere, with circling, scurrying war-ponies, they and their wild riders steadily following back before a long rank of disciplined horsemen, the extended skirmish line of Webb's squadron, backed by supports at regular intervals and all heading straight on for the broad lowlands of the elk send six of your men over to the south front sergeant were ray's orders to windsor as he hurried over to join clayton again they may try one final charge from that side and give us a chance to empty a few more saddles creeping and crouching through the timber the chosen men obeyed and were assigned to stations under clayton's eye the precaution was wise indeed, for just as the captain foresaw, a rally in force began far out over the southward slopes, the Indians gathering in great numbers about some chieftain midway between the coming force and the still-beleaguered defenders of the grove, then brandishing lance and shield and rifle, as before they began spreading out across the prairie, heading now for the cottonwoods, while others still faced and fired on the far blue skirmish line. The fierce wind, sweeping across the direction of the attack, deadened all sound of hoof or war-chant. But there was no mistaking the signs, no doubt of the intent, when in a little moment more the earth began to tremble beneath the dancing pony-feet, telling almost within the swiftness of sight that the grand advance had again begun. But other eyes were watching, too, other soldiers, keen campaigners, as those at the elk were there afield, and almost at the moment the wild barbaric horde burst yelling into their eager gallop, and before the dust-cloud hid the distant slopes beyond, the exuberant shout went up from the captain's lips as he threw down his glass and grabbed his carbine. "'It's all right, men. The Major's coming. At their heels. Now let em have it.' 
In former days there had been scenes of wild rejoicing, sometimes of deep emotion, when relief came to some Indian besieged detachment of the old regiment. Once, far to the south in the wild, romantic park country of Colorado, a strong detachment had been corralled for days by an overwhelming force of Utes, their commander a dozen of their best men, all the horses killed, and many troopers sorely wounded. They had been rescued at last by their skilled and gallant colonel. After a long and most scientific march by both night and day, another time still further in their past but still within a dozen years away down the broad valley of the very stream of which this little elk was a tributary the cheyennes had hemmed in and sorely hammered two depleted troops that owed their ultimate rescue to the daring of the very officer who so coolly confidently headed the defense this day to a night ride through the indian lines that nearly cost him his brave young life that brought Captain Truscott with a fresh and powerful troop, sweeping in to their succor with the dawn. Then there had been men who strained other men to their hearts, and who shed tears like women for gallant comrades had bitten the dust in the desperate fighting of the day before, and hope itself had almost gone, with the ammunition of the beleaguered command. Now with heavier losses than had befallen Wayne in seventy-six, Ray's command beheld, with almost tranquil hearts, the coming of the fierce array in final charge. Behind them, not two miles, to be sure, rode in swift, well-ordered pursuit the long line of comrade troopers. But there had been intervening years of campaign experiences that dulled to a degree the earlier enthusiasms of the soldier and taught at least the assumption of professional composure that was the secret wonder of the suckling trooper and that became his chief ambition to acquire it is one thing to charge home at a hard fighting command when friends and comrades back the effort and cheer the charging line it is another to charge home conscious that other chargers are coming at one's heels Magnificent as a spectacle, therefore, this closing dash of lame wolf's warriors was but a meek reminder of their earlier attack. Long before they came within four hundred yards of the leafy stronghold, the moment, indeed, the brown springfields began their spiteful bark. To right and left the warriors veered, far out on either flank, screeching and yelling as was their savage way. They tore madly by, flattened out against their ponies' necks, and those who could use their arms at all, pumping wild shots that whistled harmless over the heads of the defenders, and bit the blackened prairie many a rod beyond. Only jeers rewarded the stirring spectacle, jeers, and a few low-aimed, sputtering volleys that brought other luckless ponies to their knees and sprawled a few red riders. But less than five minutes from the warning cry that hailed their coming, Lame Wolf and his host were lining Elk Tooth Ridge, and watching with burning hate and vengeful eyes the swift, steady advance of Webb's long blue fighting line, and the utter unconcern of the defense, even before the revealing squadron was within carving range. Certain of Ray's men had scrambled out upon the northward bank, and pushing forward upon the prairie, 
were possessing themselves of the arms and ornaments of the two dead warriors whom the Sioux had strived in vain to reach and bear within their lines. Ray and Clayton at the moment were strolling placidly forth upon the southward bench to receive and welcome the little knot of comrades sent galloping in advance to greet them. There was, perhaps, just a suspicion of exaggerated nonchalance about their gait and bearing, a regimental weakness, possibly, and no other officer save Lieutenant Field happened to be within earshot when Winsor's voice on the other front was heard in hoarse command, "'Come back here, you fellows! Back or you're goners!' The sight had proved too much for some of the Sioux. Down again, at furious speed, came a scattered cloud of young braves, following the lead of the tall, magnificent chief, who had been the hero of the earlier attack, down into the low ground, never swerving or checking pace, straight for the grove, the three or four inquisitive bluecoats in the meantime scurrying for shelter, and the yell that went up at sight of the Indian dash and the quick reopening of the sputtering fire brought Ray, running once again to the northward edge of the timber, wondering what could be amiss. Field was lying on his blanket just under the bank as the captain darted by and grinned his gratification as he heard the brief assuring words, Webb's here, all hands with him. An instant later a bullet whizzed through the roots of the old cottonwood above his head, and far from out of field, deadened by the rush of the wind, a dull cackle of shots told that something had recalled the Sioux to the attack and for three minutes there was a lively full side all along the northward side then it slowly died away and other voices close at hand someone speaking his name called the lad's attention he was weak from loss of blood and just a little dazed and flighty he had met three hours agone that when he next encountered his post commander his manner should plainly show that senior that even a second lieutenant had rights a major was bound to respect, but only mistily. Now he saw bending over him the keen, soldierly features, the kind, winsome gray eyes filled with such a world of concern and sympathy, and heard the deep, earnest tones of the voice he knew so well, calling again his name in mingling cordial praise and anxious inquiry, and all the answers seemed to float away with the smoke of the last carving shots. He could only faintly return the pressure of that firm, muscular hand, only feebly smile his thanks and reassurance, and then he, too, seemed floating away somewhere into space, and he could not manage to connect what Webb had been saying with the next words that fastened on his trot senses. It must have been hours later, too, for darkness had settled on the valley. A little fire was burning under the shelter of the bank. A little group of soldiers were chatting in low tone, close at hand. Among them, his arm in a sling, stood a stocky little chap whose face, seen in the flickering light, was familiar to him. So was the eager brogue in which that little chap was speaking. A steward was remonstrating, and only vaguely at first Field grasped the meaning of his words. The captain said you were not to try to follow, Kennedy at least not until Dr. Waller saw you. Wait till he gets here. He can't be three miles back now. To hell with ye, was the vehement answer. Do you think I'd be mahoonded around with the whole command gone after them bloody Sioux? 
I've made my mark on one of them, and he's the buck I'm after. He's made his mark on you, Kennedy, broke in a soldier voice. You mad fool trying to tackle a chief like that, even if he was hit, for he had his whole gang behind him. Sure, he dared me out, and what's this he called me a dud whiskey theft be the never oh shut up kennedy laughed a brother irishman you were full as a go to k troop stables where'd you get the whiskey he thought i'll lay you lanigan when i get two hands again though i might about want would do it it's me horse i want now and have to go on with the cap'n ready now sir he added with sudden change of tone and manner for a tall slender form came striding into the firelight and field knew blake at the instant and would have called but for the first word from the captain's lips your heart's safe kennedy i wish your head was your past master and blaffs me out there won't eat it at all events did, did you get him sir after all i didn't his english spoiled my aim twas winsor shot him now you're to stay here you and calamine the doctor may bring despatches and you follow us with the first to come an orderly had led forth a saddled horse and blake's foot was already in the stirrup they say it was red fox himself kennedy he added where on earth did you meet him before sure i never knew him sir was the quick reply as blake's long lean legs swung over the big charger's back and the rider settled in the saddle but he knew you perfectly well. He dared you by name when we closed on them, you and Mr. Field. And when an hour later the veteran surgeon came and knelt by the side of the young officer, reported seriously wounded, and took his hand and felt his pulse, there was something in the situation that seemed to call for immediate action. We'll get you back to Frayne tomorrow, Field, said Waller with kind intent. Don't worry now. Don't do that, doctor, feebly, surprisingly moaned the fevered lad. Don't take me back to Frayne. End of chapter 13